As I record this, it is around 3 p.m. on Sunday, the 14th of June, 2020. You could not ask for a more perfect day weather-wise. Mid to upper 70s, not a cloud in the sky. Today is a quintessential summer Sunday afternoon. Sunny, serene, and, for me at least, pensive. From my vantage point in my apartment, there is a well-trafficked four-lane road about 50 yards away a road that connects several commercial and industrial areas to nearby neighborhoods. And today, there are a few cars out there. Traffic is light, to be sure, given the aforementioned daytime and weather, but there are cars out there. Two months ago, in mid-April, the lack of traffic on that road was eerie, noticeable, palpable. The state of Indiana was in the middle of our stay-at-home orders, issued in late March and extended by early April, reducing traffic mainly to essential workers and delivery vehicles. A couple of weeks before that, on the evening of Tuesday, the 10th of March 2020, Purdue University administration sent out an email informing its students, faculty, and staff that the university would transition to distance learning for the remainder of the spring 2020 semester in response to the accelerating global pandemic, the novel coronavirus, or COVID-19. At that time in mid-March, many colleges, universities, and public school systems around the country and the world were making similar decisions, as were businesses and industries small and large, as were public and municipal and governmental offices, as were entire cities, counties, states, and countries. The world was firmly embedded in a dilemma. To save lives and reduce the rate at which the virus was spreading, It was necessary to shut down the economy, restrict travel, temporarily close businesses, industries, roadways, and airways, necessary actions that all had inherent risks of their own. In the face of a public health crisis, a conflict with a silent, microscopic, and potentially fatal antagonist unfathomably adept at spreading itself around the globe with seemingly unreal speed and efficiency, the world was united, for the most part in distancing ourselves from one another. We were settling in for an unprecedented stretch, certainly in my several decades of life on this planet anyway, of being expected to stay at home and avoid social contact, in many places indefinitely, for as long as it seemed appropriate and medically necessary to do so, for the health of our communities. This series of the Grindstone Podcast will explore the COVID-19 pandemic from various perspectives asking a range of experts to share their insights, information, data, and general thoughts on the public health crisis, our responses political and personal to it, and how to navigate the current and hopefully not too far off post-pandemic world. It is also, by the very nature of how we recorded these interviews over the weeks of May and June during which we recorded them, the story of how we, as humans, communicate and disseminate information and most importantly, stay close to one another during a socially distanced time. This is the Grindstone Podcast COVID-19 series, brought to you from a distance, with love and hope, from West Lafayette, Indiana, and many other locations across the country. listening to The Grindstone, a philosophy podcast from Purdue University. 
One of the first questions I struggled with personally as stay-at-home orders were being implemented across the country and the world was, what will be the long-term effects on public health, broadly construed, of shutting down the economy? Now, it should be stated that we do not speak for the Department of Philosophy at Purdue, nor certainly for the university itself, so take this as one person's thought process during the early stages of shutting down the economy to combat the virus. But it seemed to me, as it did to many people, I think, that the loss of jobs and economic flows would have its own costs in terms of mental health, access to medical care, and loss of life as a result of those and many other factors we could not readily predict in such a strange and sudden shift in our daily lives. Though I had arrived at this question through my own concerns and pathways of thought, this was a question being asked, contemplated, and discussed by many people and in various media outlets. It should also be stated clearly that I am no ethicist, I am not an academic philosopher specializing in ethics. But to me, there seemed to be something of a trolley problem looming in the background of these conversations and this question that seemed to be on the minds of so many people. In a nutshell, the trolley problem poses a thought experiment in ethical reasoning, one which places you in the uncomfortable position of being in charge of a runaway trolley car and the eventual track on which it will travel. Down one set of tracks await five hapless people, unable to move out of the way of the runaway trolley. On the other track awaits one person, equally unable to avoid their fate. To explain the trolley problem, we spoke with Dr. Dan Kelly, professor of philosophy at Purdue University. Dan was an Andrew W. Mellon Foundation Fellow at the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University during the 2018-19 academic year. He is also affiliated with the Implicit Bias in Philosophy International Research Project, as well as Purdue's Climate Change Research Center. His article, co-written with Purdue philosophy graduate student Stephen Setman on the psychology of normative cognition, is forthcoming in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. So the trolley problem is, um, it's the most memeable thought experiment um, in philosophy. Uh, <laughs> um, right. You can, go, you know, you can go online and find different variations of it. And, uh, you know, people are trying to map our current situation into, to, you know, exotic variations of the trolley problem. But the basic setup, <laughs> like, like, a like a lot of philosophic thought experiments, is it's trying to give um, an extremely sort of pared down, almost artificial situation with which to elicit di um, different kinds of philosophical intuitions. Um, and the trolley problem, if you've seen The Good Place, which I can't recommend highly enough for anyone who's interested in philosophy, um, they, they actually have an entire episode on this. Um, and so, okay, so, so sort of the first variation of the trolley problem goes something like this. Imagine, um, for whatever reason, you're walking through um, you know, the train yard or the, you know, the trolley yard, if that's a thing. Um, and you walk up to, to what you realize is a switch, um, like a physical thing that you can flip the switch and it, it'll divert a trolley from one track to another. There's a fork in a trolley track. And you also notice that there's an out of control trolley. It's speeding along. Um, if you don't do anything, it's going to speed right into five people and kill all five of those people. Um, and what you realize in a sort of moment is that if you flip the switch that you've just sort of walked up to, you can divert the trolley from the track that it is on, in which it'll kill five people, to another track. There's one person standing on that other track, and that person will be killed if you flip the switch. So the moral dilemma here is, is it morally permissible or is it the morally obligatory thing to do to actually take action, intervene on the side of the situation, and flip the switch? So if you did that, 
one person would die versus the five people that that would have died but they would have died be, the one person would have died because of something that you did okay so the question is is it morally okay is it morally permissible is it morally obligatory okay so, that, so that's sort of scenario one scenario two is a variation on this and again there's millions of variations on this it's an entire sure. cottage industry but the, the sort of the most famous contrast class um is okay same situation for whatever reason you're wandering around the train tracks um and you find yourself sort of walking up a footbridge to go over a, a trolley track um, and when you get to the top of this footbridge you realize again that there's an out of control trolley it's sort of speeding down the tracks um, and there's five people working on the tracks. If you don't do anything, all five of those people will be hit and killed by this out of control trolley. In this situation, once you get to the top of this footbridge, which is sort of over, it's a footbridge which is going over the, the trolley tracks, um, there's another human being there who's wearing um, a very large and very heavy backpack. This is a girthy person in terms of what they're carrying with them. And you also realize if you shove this person over the trolley tracks, and they hit the ground and hit the then that then the trolley will kill that person but it will also the backpack is big enough and heavy enough that it will stop the trolley so once again you're faced with the same mm. in the abstract the same situation should i push this should i take action should i intervene on this state of affairs which i've stumbled on um if i don't right do on. anything five people will die if i do take action uh, one person will die Right on. Okay. So, so the reason that this is sort of a thought experiment is, well, in both cases, um, you know, what you're basically deciding between is should one person die or should five people die? In both cases, you have the choice to sort of lower the mathematics sort of from an actuarial point of view, they're identical. Um, and you have a choice, should I intervene and, you know, bring it about such that not five people die, but only one die. Um, and what's interesting about this case is like, you know, different moral theories are going to give different answers to whether or not it's morally permissible or obligatory in the different cases. Turns out um, a lot of people recoil from the the scenario where they have to actually like get their hands dirty and shove someone off of a bridge, whereas they seem to be a little bit more uh, sanguine about just flipping a switch from some distance away. Um, <laughs> so more, more people will say it's okay to flip the switch than it is to like shove the person off the bridge, um, okay. which is, which can be puzzling. If you're into moral psychology, this is the initial puzzle. Um, because if you're a utilitarian, um, which is just, you know, you want to figure out what the morally correct thing to do is, you, you figure out what the consequences of the various actions should be, you figure out the one which is going to minimize suffering or maximize happiness, and you do that one. Like for the most people, but this is, this is key given the situation and where everyone's pleasure yeah. and pain or everyone's happiness or displeasure all count equally and they all factor into it. Because if you're a utilitarian, right, so you don't make distinctions between different, you know, races or different classes of people, um, everyone counts equally. There's nothing, there's nothing morally relevant, which is different between these two scenarios. To put this into context... When I originally asked Dan about the ethical dilemma of shutting down the economy versus not shutting down the economy, I was conflating the thought experiment that is the trolley problem with a consequentialist problem. You just heard Dan speaking to this latter piece. To provide another brief gloss on the philosophical ethics at play here, consequentialist ethics, or teleological ethics, determines the relative rightness and wrongness of our actions based on the perceived outcomes, or consequences, of those actions. Utilitarianism, one form of consequentialism, 
which argues that our actions should create the greatest amount of happiness for the greatest number of people, will be discussed by one of our guests momentarily. In contrast to consequentialist ethics, non-consequentialist ethics, or deontological ethics, determines the relative rightness and wrongness of our actions based on adherence to certain rules, principles, or duties. You can think of it like this. The consequentialist is concerned with what our actions will bring about, what will result from our actions. The non-consequentialist, on the other hand, is concerned with applying a principle to determine her actions without consideration for the outcomes. As Dan explained to me how the trolley problem differs technically from a consequentialist problem, it became clear to me that though the trolley problem is instructive, and frankly very useful and fun to explore in an Intro to Ethics course, the COVID-19 crisis is no thought experiment. This is a very real crisis with very real consequences, which is not to say that we are always operating with a full empirical picture of the consequences of our decisions. The decision to shut down, and for how long, or not to shut down, was based on both real-time data and also projections of what was potentially to come if government officials implemented one strategy over another. All this is to say that the ethical dilemma of shutting down the economy versus not shutting down the economy, and the differing paths those decisions would take us down, have very real consequences, consequences that required a blend of real-time data with predictive analytics and projections. One field in which we see the very real consequences of our decisions during this pandemic and the potentially fatal nature of COVID-19 itself, is in healthcare. We asked the same questions we asked of Dan Kelly to Dr. Amy Martin. Amy is a bioethicist and currently serves as the Executive Director of Clinical and Organizational Ethics at IU Health, where she is also a senior affiliate faculty at the Charles Warren Fairbanks Center for Medical Ethics. So the way I think about this is in a couple of ways. One is we can't know what this is going to look like. So really parsing out um, this scenario is, is a predictive model, which we can't um, really participate in. But there are very real consequences of shutting down the economy um, that have even health effects on um, whether it's mental health, physical health, um, inability to obtain and procure normal health treatments that are problematic to, um, to just the general kind of quote unquote shutting down of the economy and of, of healthcare as it normally is. Um, I kind of refer to these as the shadow deaths that could occur. Uh, they're not the direct deaths caused by coronavirus, but the deaths caused by coronavirus because X didn't happen. Um, I think that the way, you know, the way people look at things first is the I standpoint, and then it's the tribal standpoint, and then it's the true utilitarian standpoint. Um, and in a crisis like this, the way we almost have to back into it, and I know we're at a point where we're not in full crisis mode anymore, or we're kind of in a what's going on mode, um, hmm. is to say that um, we started at a real utilitarian point you know, greatest good for the greatest number, specifically as related to the disease process and mitigation of the disease. But what mm -hmm. does that mean for our economy and the future? I don't know if this is a, a bias because I work in healthcare, but my concern is that if we start to look at the economy as the primary 
um, driver of how we operate, what will end up happening is we'll get more deaths due to coronavirus, which will actually potentially, and I am not an economist, I am not a money person, um, but potentially cause more harm in, in the long term to the economy, right? So to think about, let's say, restaurant workers. Um, so we say, let's reopen the restaurants 50%, and then um, you know, we cause another uptick in cases of COVID, and then the hospitals are a little bit overwhelmed again. Well, will people actually, in the long term, end up going back to restaurants when that may have been the precursor to the second surge? Or is it more detrimental to the restaurant economy to have to reopen and then close again? You might have heard Amy mention what she calls shadow deaths. We were intrigued by this concept, one that had also been in the background of some of our questions around the dilemma of shutting down the economy in one form or another, though we didn't know this terminology. The way I think of it is that shadow deaths are fatalities which could potentially, and unfortunately will, result from people not being able to access health care during the pandemic, particularly during the economic shutdown. This inability to access health care could stem from several causes, two among them being that A, Healthcare processes have shifted in response to COVID-19, making it more inadvisable, financially burdensome, or logistically impossible, depending on the protocols implemented at certain hospitals, for people to pursue elective surgeries that could otherwise have prolonged their life. And B, another possible cause of shadow deaths being that people will not be seeking the appropriate healthcare they should be seeking in an effort to avoid exposure to the novel coronavirus. Here's Amy again. So... A couple of things. One, business as usual in the healthcare system has absolutely changed. We're not doing things that we would consider more elective. And elective does not mean cosmetic surgery. Elective means it's not urgent or emergent. And mm-hmm. there are certainly things that fall within the kind of gray zone between urgent and emergent and elective. Um, so a heart surgery potentially is considered elective, but sitting around and waiting for six months is not appropriate. Um, So we think a lot about those things. Um, But simultaneously, if you break your arm, you still go to the emergency room or the urgent care center uh, to receive treatment. But we do know that people are not showing up at the ED, at the emergency department to receive treatment because they're afraid, A, they don't want to get coronavirus. B, they don't Mm -hmm. think that there is the bandwidth to care for them. So people are just not accessing appropriate care, uh, which Mm. will lead to poor outcomes. I think specifically, um, one major concern that we talk about really is mental health. The shadow effects of mental health in this this scenario for um, essential workers, for healthcare providers, for people who are lonely, for people who have um, kind of untriggered mental health issues to begin with, the anxieties around this, the anxieties as you talk about um, the, the job market in the future, all of those things are very real. Even if it doesn't cause deaths, it will in a very different way cause other health outcomes um, that are, are negative health outcomes and might not be treated in the appropriate amount of time because of fear of going and accessing health care. Amy brings up a good point and a fair concern for many of us. We probably shouldn't base such decisions solely on the economic data and projections. 
But at the core of the ethical dilemma we posed to our guests was precisely this debate around shutting down the economy versus not doing so. Like it or not, there is an economic question at play here. By early May, the United States had already seen record unemployment claims in consecutive weeks and a massive drop in economic activity, a sharp and sudden downturn that swallowed not only millions of jobs, but also included consumer spending and the travel and entertainment industries. Though we may have framed this initially as an ethical question, when projections of the economy are at play, one turns to the experts. Dr. Jillian Carr is an assistant professor of economics in the Cranert School of Management at Purdue University. Dr. Carr is also part of the Purdue University Research Center in Economics, or PERS, the Justice Tech Lab, and the Policing Project. Jillian is currently working on a publication tentatively titled Hungry for Success, Snap Timing, High Stakes Exam Performance, and College Attendance with colleagues Timothy Bond, Annalisa Packham, and Jonathan Smith. Here's Jillian considering the potential short-term and long-term consequences of the economic shutdown, the necessity of the shutdown for our public health, how and when we can expect to see the economy bounce back, and what indicators we should be looking to for a sense of when the recovery will begin and how quickly things will turn around. To put this into context, we spoke to Jillian on May 8th, when job loss numbers were bleak, to say the least. Yeah, so I think the the first thing that I immediately think of is the fact that there's sort of two components to the shutdown. Um, the first is the official stay-at-home orders, you know, coming from the government that are that are very policy-driven. Um, and then there's the other part of it, which is that um, we all know what flattening the curve is. Uh, we all sort of know what the pro-social behavior is at this point. Um, and I think that even if we try to officially reopen the economy, the sort of first order public health problems are going to keep people from going back out. So on some level, if we do a better job squashing things quickly, (laughs) we might actually be able to sort of have a quicker rebound. Um, And so thinking about this question of short run versus long run, how do we um, sort of think about those differently here? I mean, the the original sort of impression that I got from most of, you know, politicians, society, Twitter, all these things was this idea that we could bounce back really, really quickly. And yeah, there's a very vibrant econ Twitterverse. Uh, so uh, it was, yeah, it's a very exciting place, especially like when numbers come out from the BLS or anything. Um, so today it was full of some great, uh, very sad memes. Um, but all, Sorry, all that to real say, quick, just to clarify, what's the BLS? Oh, the Bureau for Labor Statistics. Nice. Um, so yeah, they're going to be the people who provide us all the jobs numbers that people are talking about. And so, uh, so it's a yeah, it's a very exciting place to be when any type of official jobs <laughs> or unemployment report or GDP or anything like that comes out. Right, right, um, right. But when we think about these indicators, short run versus long run, it's always hard to tell what is short run versus what is long run. And I think we all initially hoped that if we flatten the curve aggressively enough and quickly enough, we could sort of have a really nice quick bounce back where we would, we're still sort of in the short run world um, and everybody comes right back. And I think locally, a really good example of this is actually Subaru. So before they did any official furloughs, they were keeping everybody on payroll. They just did a shutdown like they do. They do one during the summer and one during like Christmas time every year. So they just said, we're going to keep paying everyone. Just go home. We don't want this to spread through the, the plant. 
So I think they did it for two weeks before they said, okay, now we're going to officially furlough and you guys can all apply for unemployment. Um, and so that's sort of, at least in my mind, we had this idea very early on that if we, if we did everything correctly, we could have this really quick bounce back. And I think that that's why the March numbers and then the April numbers for job losses are, you know, I mean, obviously you had much more of the month impacted, but you also had people trying to hang on before officially going into things like furloughing workers. And so, um, so you, you mentioned sort of an interest in these indicators. Um, and I think that for me, the one I'm always looking at is job loss. Um, so this mm-hmm. is going to be sort of new losses. Um, that's the number that came out today. <laughs> uh, 20.5 million people in April um, lost their jobs. And, and that mm-hmm. is way larger than the Great Recession. Um, it is not mm-hmm. quite um, Great Depression levels yet, but, but it is like absolutely astronomical. But what's really different about that number um, is that I think it was 80% of people who reported these losses reported them being temporary, which means that people are still sort of expecting this bounce back, right? Like Subaru isn't talking about closing the plant yet. They're just trying to figure out how to keep it viable. Um, And so I think, at least to me, that's one of the big short-term versus long-term differences in this particular setting is thinking about like, is there time for companies to have structural changes or whether it really is just, okay, we're going to close the Lafayette Brewing Company for a couple weeks and then we'll come back. Um, The difference is the stacked pickle is going under completely, right? And so the more we transition from temporary closures to straight up exiting the market, that, that's where we start to think about, at least I start to think about as transitioning from short run to long run. And so I think if you're looking for an indicator of this longer run impact, I would be looking at businesses that are legit closing. I mean, bankruptcies are a little iffy, but exiting the market is where I would personally think about drawing the line. We'll be hearing more from Jillian later in the show and throughout the series. But to close this first segment, we wanted to circle back to perhaps the fundamental question, ethical or otherwise, around the pandemic and the necessity of shutting down economies. The shutdowns and stay-at-home orders were aimed at one goal, reducing the spread of COVID-19 and saving lives. This decision was not well received by many people across the globe who responded with varying levels of unenthusiasm toward their local or national governments. That said, given what we knew and projected about the virus a couple of months ago, and, sadly, given the recent spikes in the number of cases in certain places around the United States, making difficult decisions with very real economic consequences of their own was as we see it here at the Grindstone anyway, directed toward the best possible epidemiological outcome. Dr. Audrey Ruppel is an assistant professor of One Health Epidemiology and the Department of Public Health in the College of Health and Human Sciences at Purdue University. Dr. Ruppel is a member of the Purdue Comparative Oncology Program and the Purdue Center for Cancer Research. Her primary research interest lies in the area of One Health, exploring the intersection of human, animal, and environmental health. Here's Audrey discussing in part this concept of One Health, a concept that I know at the time when she explained it to Caroline and I really hit home and on which is, I think, a great way to end the first segment of the show. People have not learned a lot about public health in a big general sense. And so we do have people that are really fighting hard against public health measures that are being put in place that are literally to protect their health. And this is something that I find incredibly fascinating and I'm not a psychologist. I sometimes would like to have like some deep conversations about why this happens because I think that there is a real interesting psychology behind it. Um, But this idea that doing 
something that is a level of self-sacrifice, but for a greater good, having people fight against it because it is against their individual rights is something I find incredibly fascinating. And I do feel like if we'd done a better job of educating, like starting in elementary school, educating people mm -hmm. about public health and about the importance of thinking about greater good and greater health and about how we are all connected one to another, which is, and this is essentially what I do, this one health epidemiology, that none of us have health unless all of us have health, especially in terms of infectious diseases. I can only be as healthy as the least healthy person in my environment. Mm. Mm. So it's, pretty, it's a pretty fascinating thing to me that we have people fighting, like literally with assault rifles, <laughs> fighting and being violent in order to protect their individual rights in the face of an epidemic disease. Like it just, it's pretty fascinating to me. And so I think that that is a failure of education. In the second segment of the show, we'll shift our focus to the healthcare system and the effects imposed on it by COVID-19. We'll consider effects on long-term healthcare, the long-term effects on healthcare, and how hospitals are dealing with end-of-life situations. We'll continue to revisit healthcare in the time of COVID-19 in future episodes, but for now, we'll focus briefly on the ethical questions that arise around certain aspects of healthcare during the pandemic. Audrey Rubel brings to the Grindstone's COVID-19 series a much-needed perspective and area of specialization, epidemiology. She is also the series' resident optimist, but more on this in later episodes. For now, we shift gears slightly to focus on the healthcare system and how it has responded to and been affected by COVID-19. The current pandemic is a crisis in which the underlying factor is the rapid spread of a potentially fatal disease. The responses of governments, both local and national across the globe, have underscored, in large part, our unpreparedness to handle such an outbreak. It also underscores the intricacies of how healthcare systems work, or, unfortunately for many people, do not work. One of the topics we addressed with several of our guests was access to healthcare, in particular, poor access to healthcare, and access to poor healthcare. By poor access to healthcare, we mean to highlight the large portions of our population that cannot access healthcare, either because they do not have insurance coverage or because healthcare facilities are at a significant distance and the people in need of those facilities do not have their own transportation or a public transit infrastructure by which to access it, or because other roadblocks exist that might be preventing people from accessing healthcare. By access to poor healthcare, we mean to highlight people that may ostensibly have access to healthcare but the facilities which they are able to access are limited in the healthcare they can offer, or the facilities themselves are in poor condition or out of date. These situations have also been exacerbated by a general shift in healthcare facilities to focus on treating the novel coronavirus, especially during the height of the outbreak in March and April. But, as Audrey points out, this puts strains on hospitals and their patients, particularly in rural communities. The strain on the healthcare system caused by COVID-19 has downstream effects on the system as well, especially where long-term illness treatment is concerned. We spoke to Audrey in mid-May, so if it sounds like some of this conversation, or any of the episodes in this series, is itself out of date, 
Keep in mind that cities like Houston are just now in the last two weeks reporting that 75% of their ICU capacity was filled in large part by coronavirus patients. Here's Audrey again. I mean, you just nailed one of the ways that, that we're dealing with this. In larger populations, hospitals are being dedicated to COVID-19, and then anything else is going to a different hospital. So people yeah. who do need chemotherapy or emergency care for things like injuries would not be going to that same hospital where you'd have COVID-19 patients. Now, in smaller communities, more rural communities, this becomes a real issue, and this is where we're really seeing this divide in the United States. So we have... Mm-hmm is in the state of Indiana, where there are no general practitioners in the entire county. So trying to divide up care amongst different, you know, populations, it just isn't a possibility. I mean, they may be having to drive, you know, two counties over just to get to their local urgent care. And that urgent care is not able to quarantine and say, we're only going to see COVID patients, or we're only going to see emergency patients. They're going to have to take everybody in. So we're really seeing some discrepancies in the United States in terms of health care um, availability. We're also seeing issues around chronic diseases. I mean, there are certainly going to be long-term implications for people that are not doing regular monitoring or regular therapies or having interruptions to therapies that were supposed to be ongoing. And those are things that I think some of them we can probably predict, but I think a lot of them we don't know. We're going to just have to wait and see what some of those long-term outcomes are. Hospitals, for better or for worse, are busy places. For many people, it is where they took their first breaths, and unfortunately for some, it is where they will take their last breaths. For those of us that have seen loved ones in the latter of these two situations, it's difficult and can feel cold, callous, even surreal. Now, this is not to comment on the amazing healthcare workers that try their best to comfort patients at the end of their lives and the family and loved ones that are present with them, but the reality is, there can be a stark bureaucratic formality to the setting for such an emotional time in the lives of those left behind. One of the questions we wanted to ask was how hospitals are dealing with these end-of-life situations and the ethics of care in those situations, particularly where, in the light of the pandemic, there may be restrictions in hospitals against visitors, including, potentially, the families of those who are dying. The whole point of medicine is to take care of people. That is the goal of what we do, and part of taking care of people is to think about the psychosocial aspects of healthcare, not only for the person we care for, but for their loved ones as well. Um, And if we kind of don't consider that or miss that in some sense, we've missed the entirety of what it is that we do. Hmm. Now, that being said, the priority in these scenarios is mitigation, right? And then stewardship of resources. Um, So the stewardship of resources is, important also when we think about visitors coming coming into the hospital, right? So if we don't have enough PPE, our healthcare providers are going to have to be the people who are with people as they die um, because they're the ones that are there. That being said, most places that I'm aware of are allowing people who are dying to be visited by loved ones. Um, that that is kind of the exception to the visitor rule is to um, be able to be escorted into the hospital um, kind of with a chaperone with the correct PPE to say goodbye to people because that is very, very important. And um, as I said, if we don't figure out how to do these things appropriately and if possible, uh, we've, we've we've missed the point. Nursing homes are a little bit more difficult you know, they don't don't stockpile PPE in the same way or order it in the same way, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So those are a little bit harder for people to access. Um, it, for nursing homes, we have to still consider um, how we mitigate disease passing um, because of especially how vulnerable the population in a nursing home is. And then secondarily, making sure that um, we are being good stewards of scarce resources. Those things have to be primary to visitors, um, which of course is unfortunate, but this whole situation is very unfortunate and we are having to make decisions that are uh, seemingly awful, hard decisions when it comes to things that we would normally otherwise do. Amy points out the difficulty of making these decisions, another dilemma that we have been faced with as a result of the pandemic. It can feel as though COVID-19 has produced a cascade of dilemmas and ethical questions intersecting and conflicting with and embedded in one another. And this is true to an extent, given the rapid spread of the disease, the cruel reality of its potential to affect the entire globe, and the sudden shift in our day-to-day lives in response to the pandemic. We'll revisit the moral dilemmas inherent in our responses to the novel coronavirus momentarily. But first, here's Amy again discussing how and when hospitals will be reopening for the elective procedures that she mentioned earlier in the show, and the effect on healthcare workers, their own health, and their livelihoods during the pandemic. For point of reference, we spoke with Amy in early May, when numbers were flattening a bit as we were a few weeks into stay-at-home orders for the most part across the country. Here, she highlights the fact that making decisions on reopening hospitals, the services they will begin to provide again, and how to determine the necessity and urgency of those services is inherently ethical. Now that we've kind of figured out um, how to deal with the coronavirus as it comes into the hospital, that the numbers are, you know, kind of knock on wood, have flattened out a little bit. Um, and we have some idea of what we're expecting in terms of numbers right now and feel like we can move forward a tiny bit in how we operate in the hospital, reopening elective procedures. Um, there is a very methodical way that we think about that. We're not just saying, mm-hmm. oh, everybody can do everything, right? Because we still have to be very good stewards of resources. We still um, have to think about potential surges in, in numbers of corona patients. Um, we have to think about the health of our healthcare workers who have been working very, very hard. Um, and unfortunately, you know, some who haven't been working much at all because their area of expertise has not been needed in this time and their um, ability to do what they normally do has been put on hold. But the way we think about it is we want to do things that um, are very, that are, are kind of more urgent at this time in a way that we're considering long-term outcomes so need for doing something, and also um, the ability to treat people who have been um, in pain for a while, to mitigate pain and discomfort, that those take priority. But we also have to think about things that are maybe utilize a ton of resources and don't have a lot of benefit to um, a patient in terms of urgency and necessity to reduce pain and suffering. One example might be, and I don't know this for sure, but just kind of off the top of my head, a a cataract surgery, right? Being able to fix your cloudy eyes might not be high on the priority list of things to do if it requires a lot of utilization of resources and you can Mm. survive another um, six weeks, no problem with those. Mm. So just thinking about those types of things to make sure that there is a, a in a sense, an ethical framework to moving forward. So what exactly is a dilemma? And how do we, as ethical agents, handle one? 
When it comes to the kind of life-threatening, global-scale, dilemma-upon-dilemma-producing reality that is COVID-19, how do we respond and make decisions? We ask these questions of Professor Dan Kelly, a specialist in moral philosophy and psychology, whom you will recall explained the trolley problem earlier in the show. Here is some more of that conversation with Dan. In this portion of our conversation, he explains just how sticky these dilemmas can be, and how psychologically uncomfortable even hypothetical situations like a trolley problem can make people. We thought this was an interesting philosophical perspective on the discomfort that goes into making ethical decisions, such as those related to healthcare and the economy that we have been discussing up to this point. So it's a moral dilemma, right? Yeah. And yeah. so the point of any dilemma is, you know, you're, you're given two, sometimes more, but in the simplest case, you're given two options. Um, and, and in some sense, they both suck. Right. Like that, there, there's <laughs> it wouldn't be a dilemma if I was choosing between should I, you know, have my, my thumb hit with a hammer and a slice of pie. No, that's not a dilemma. That's easy. Um, uh, but if, if you're choosing between like five people die or one people die, but I have to be the one who brings it up. But that, neither one of those options are good options. That's what makes it a dilemma. You know, rock yeah, in a hard yeah, place yeah. into the frying pan out of the fire, whatever. Um, yeah. OK, so, so good. That's that, that that is in some sense maps on to the choice that we're collectively making right now. Do we stay locked down and sort of safety? OK, or do we like yeah. let it go and go for herd immunity? OK, good. So yeah, now we've got those pieces in place. Here's another thing I want to take a step back on. So when I sure. present the trolley problem, when we talk about this, you know, even in my intro class. Um, so these are, you know, Purdue has good students. So they, they rightly like hone in on this right away, which is they always want a way out of the, the dilemma. They don't like the two options. And so they, you know, they come up with things like, well, uh, maybe I'll just jump off the bridge or maybe there's some other way to stop the trolley from going out. So maybe I can just <laughs> yeah, yell yeah. to the five people and they can get out of it. Right? They are yeah. dissatisfied with the options. Yeah. So one, yeah. one of the things I said initially was that these dilemmas are, they're, they're sort of by design artificial and they're simplified and it's sort of you're boiling it down to like you only have the two options yeah you're, you're being clever and trying to figure out ways around the two options um, but the, the the point of the exercise from the point of view of philosophy and moral psychology is you want to get it simple enough and to give these really stark force choices because what you're trying to do is probe differences and responses um, yeah so the reason and this is all building to covid <laughs> which is <laughs> um we are not in a situation which is boiled down to such simple, straightforward, very predictable outcomes. There's not just yes. two of them. Um, we don't know what the long-term consequences are. It very much seems to me that there are resources that we have in place which are not being ideally allocated. There are options which we could sort of enact which aren't being discussed or thought about. Um, and so this idea that what we have to choose between is you know, these really stark choices like flip the switch or don't, or reopen up everything and let's go back to normal so the economy can do its thing and we just get herd immunity and some people die um yeah. versus like we should just stay in our rooms for that, that just seems very much not the case given yeah. our current situation audrey amy and dan have all mentioned the difficulty of knowing exactly what the long-term effects of the pandemic will be and of how exactly we should factor that into our decision making especially where the temporary shutting down of the economy was concerned one of the factors that drove this decision-making for governments around the world was the projection of loss of life, both in the scenario in which they did nothing and kept going about business as usual, and in scenarios mapping economic shutdowns of various durations and degrees of severity. One economic factor that may not be on the forefront of everyone's mind is the statistical value of a life. Here, 
Jillian Carr explains that prolonged loss of life as a result of not shutting down the economy can be economically more costly in the long term, especially if we experience many hundreds of thousands of deaths in a relatively short period of time. This is, sadly, the very circumstance in which we currently find ourselves, despite shutting down the economy for a stretch. On a personal note, we wanted to point out that we asked Jillian questions that were very broad and probably not very well formulated where an economist is concerned especially given the fact that she is a microeconomist and most of our questions were of a macroeconomic variety, if they were even that. And to be clear, many of the questions we posed took a rather stark tone where death was concerned. We're greatly appreciative of Jillian's willingness to field these questions. However, the cold-hearted economist that she is, her answers were disturbingly indifferent. <laughs> no, I'm, <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. People, I'm kidding. In in all sincerity, we just wanted to say that our conversation with Jillian was so warm and insightful and informative and fun, and there were moments of some much-needed levity uh, in that conversation. So if anything other than that seems to be the case based on what you are hearing from her here, please know that that is the fault of our editing. The reality of it is, as Jillian points out here, that many economists, despite certain media portrayals, were in favor of not reopening the economy too quickly, as keeping the economy closed was the best pathway to saving more lives. But, if we look at this strictly in terms of the economy, one economic factor that goes into weighing the short versus long-term effects of the shutdown is, in fact, the aforementioned statistical value of a life. Here's Jillian, and again, thanks so much to her for fielding these often vague and poorly formulated and intentionally very stark questions. Right. So this is, you know, hugely challenging. And I think that I, I don't know how this all got started, but economists have been sort of given this really bad reputation for being 100% on the side of open the economy. And somehow, mm. I don't know how that is the case, because every economist I know is like, no, loss of life is way more important. Um, and, you know, this is clearly from a, you know, we're humans, and we care a lot about loss of life. But even if we think about it from, you know, the cold hearted, way that economists think about cost and benefits. Um, the, the statistical value of a life, which is something um, that is, you know, very hard to come up with a number for. Um, it's, it's, the, it's a number that's really important to actuaries. Uh, it's important to insurance companies. Um, but basically, you know, if you're insuring against an event, you have to have a dollar value associated with it. And so the statistical value of a life is we need a number for like how much do we pay someone if they die because of X or Y or Z. So um, when I explain it to my undergrads, I typically use some data from plane crashes. And so when a plane crashes and there are payouts to the families of the victims, um, they're using a statistical value of a life. Um, a lot of other applications like with insurance, they're weighting it by percentages and things like that. But even if, you know, we take this very like cold hearted statistical value of a life thing, um, life is very, very valuable. And, you know, any action that we take that increases, you know, deaths, even if they're older individuals, and these models typically have, you know, uh, expected earnings as a component of them. And so older individuals typically get lower values. I said it was cold hearted and it is. Uh, <laughs> so I'm, I'm totally aware of that. Um, but even if we, you know, we think about the fact that most individuals who are dying from it are, you know, over 70, over 80, not in the labor market anymore. Mm -hmm. um, it's still incredibly costly. And to the extent that, you know, a second wave could cause an even greater economic shutdown and slowdown. There's also a totally practical reason to not go too fast too quickly. Um, 
So I think I think most economists would be cautioning very much against this like really quick reopening. Um, I think, and, and again, you know, there's there's the um, the policy side where the government um, is saying let's open up, and if nobody does it, then you know it's all kind of moot anyway. Um, but but the economy won't fully be operating as normal until people feel confident again or whatever it means. I see most of the recovery being independent of what state governments are telling us to do, um, or at least a large component of it, right? So hmm. here in Indiana, the sort of phase two, phase three, and I think phase four of the reopening Indiana plan, they have um, rules about how, uh, like what percentage of capacity is allowed at places like restaurants and bars. And, um, if I were a restaurant owner, uh, especially one that's been operating in terms of carryout or delivery particularly well, I might have to stop mm. and think, can I really make the amount of revenue that I need at half capacity or am I better off continuing to do carryout service? Um, and I know there are some restaurants in town that did you know, fully shut down. They're obviously going to see opening back up as better, but there are some restaurants in town that have made this transition very, very well. Um, and I wonder, you know, where they're going to find themselves or if they'll maybe think about hybrid models, which, you know, personally I'm a huge fan of, because I don't mm. know that I really feel safe going back out to restaurants yet. And so being able to, you know, That's order, good. yeah, being able to order dinner from the Sparrow on a Friday night is something I hope I can do <laughs> until there's a vaccine. <laughs> right. So, so I think, um, I think I, I've been trying to keep an eye on social media as far as which restaurants are reopening, which ones aren't just, you know, partially because I'm curious for as a consumer, but also as an economist, I'm really curious to see, you know, who is making the decision that it's worth it to reopen. I'm also curious about what kind of social pressure is going on there. You know, our, mm -hmm. I don't know if our local government is giving them any messages. I have no idea, but um, clearly the message is coming from the state that, that this is an okay thing to do. So the moral dilemma that stems from the economic shutdown in response to COVID-19 is, to say the least, a challenge. Now, we should point out that we are often speaking in the present. Of course, here in Indiana, and in so many other states, we have reopened large portions of our economy. But there are still many places and individual businesses that have not reopened, either due to government orders or their own decision-making process as a proprietor, and what they deem is best for their own business, customers, and employees. Of course, there are more than economic questions at play here, as we have been discussing throughout this episode, the multiplicity of factors, projections, models, data, and human-centric interests going into our decision-making on how best to deal with COVID-19 is what has made this pandemic and our response to it so complex. And such complexity would seem to entail that there is no single, universally applicable approach. Different geographical locations, healthcare systems, and governments will have to weigh out the decisions that are best for their circumstances. Even if we agree that we should take actions that will minimize suffering for the most amount of people, and if we wanted to use empirical research to inform that decision, there is an overwhelming amount of uncertainty still to this day where COVID-19 and the damage done are, and will be, concerned. Uncertainties seem to be the most popular word in the English vocabulary for a stretch in March and April, almost to the point of its utterance being its own cause of anxiety. We might say that the only certainty during the early stages of this pandemic and the economic shutdown was uncertainty. Here's Dan Kelly again discussing the trade-off decisions that we and our political leaders were making during the shutdown and how the uncertainty factor plays into that decision-making. There are these sorts of 
trade-off kinds of decisions that we're making at, at like, but there's tons of them, right? And that they're a much more granular right. level. Um, it's not just one big, huge moral dilemma, but there's a whole bunch of middle grounds, but we're still making these sorts of trade-off decisions. Um, mm. And I, I just, I, I resist the idea that there's going to be a one-size-fits-all principle, like that we can appeal to and just figure all this stuff out. Even if you think the basic principle of utilitarianism, which is we should be making decisions that minimize the suffering for the most people in the long run. Right. Cases like this, like to, to me, it seems like the dominating ethos of the last month has been uncertainty. Like we just, there's so much we don't know. How mm. do you make decisions based? Like there's not enough tests. We don't really know the spread. We don't know if and when there's going to be therapeutic stuff coming down the pipeline. Mm. Um, so I, you know, I was, someone was asking me what I was doing next week and I'm like, oh, hell, I don't know what I'm doing next week. I don't know what I'm doing in two days. Who knows what the world's going to look like? Um, yeah. Now, okay. Given that people still have to make decisions about this sort of stuff. Um, right. And so to the extent that there's a principle, it, it seems to me that the, if there is a single one that you could use as a guiding star, it's um, do the thing which is going to minimize the most suffering for the most people. Um, and, you know, and that, but that includes everyone, like the rich and the poor and like the men and the women. And you know, the, yeah. that seems to be, that should, that should be the thing that you sort of use as your moral compass. But again, there's so much uncertainty how to do that. I, you know, we're a rich country. It seems to me we could do better than we are doing. Let's put it that way. Forgive the somewhat obvious statement here, but the theme of this episode and the conversations that comprise it is that making decisions about how to best approach dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic is difficult. One of the questions that drove us was, of course, the economic question. To shut down or not to shut down? And what are the potentially detrimental and fatal, both short-term and long-term effects of shutting down and reopening the economy? But if we drill down even further, a more fundamental question we were asking was, at what point in this timeline, whether now or in the future, do we need to be standing at to get a picture of both the short-term and long-term effects of the pandemic and the economic shutdown? Jillian Carr offered a very straightforward response. I think I would speculate that it is when we have a vaccine, um, because if we get a vaccine next month, we have a great idea of what's going on. If we get a vaccine in a year, then we know how bad it got and we know where it's going. So I don't, I don't think that we can really make confident economic forecasts until we sort of know when this is going to be over, essentially. I mean, the, the good news is that, you know, the epidemiologists can do a whole lot right now to predict the way that this whole thing will ebb and flow and, you know, how high infection rates are going to be. Um, and I do not envy that task because forecasting is super hard in every single way. Um, but I, I would say that we can start really having an idea of the large scale economic impacts when we get a vaccine. In this last segment of the show, we wanted to shift to a more specific ethical question. Is it the right thing to do to wear a face mask in public? Why should we feel compelled to wear face masks? The answers may seem obvious to many of us, and, in fact, most of our guests operated on the assumption that it is a given that we should all be wearing face masks, and that the reasons for this are indeed obvious. 
But for those people out there, for whatever reason to which they may be clinging, that don't feel compelled to wear a face mask, we end the first episode of our COVID-19 series with this topic. Here's Audrey Rupel again explaining the public health aspects of wearing a face mask. This idea of wearing face masks, it's really not about protecting you. It's about protecting other people from you. Because we do have spittle and spray and we cough and we sneeze, um, but also we touch our faces. (laughs) And so that whole idea of, you know, that you touch, let's say you're at the grocery store and you are reaching out and grabbing vegetables that maybe somebody had actually sneezed on. And then you grab those vegetables, you put them in your cart, you touch your face, you go home, you don't wash those vegetables, you can eat them. You know, there's all kinds of ways that we can become um, in, uh, infected with COVID-19 and have absolutely no idea where we've come in contact with it. Um, some of the pictures that we've seen coming out of our local environment, you know, like um, the pictures that JNC had published of people lining up in front of Harry's, ready to get in and get their first beer at Harry's uh, after Harry's opened up. And there was definitely a lack of social distancing. I didn't see a single mask on anybody Um, So I think that there's a pretty good chance that we have virus circulating in our environment, but it might be that it's circulating amongst those people that are most likely to be asymptomatic carriers. So there's Mm -hmm. college age students, you know, that are young and healthy and are likely not going to have some sort of a lethal outcome from COVID-19, but may very well be taking that virus home with them now that the semester is coming to an end. So wearing a face mask is not just about protecting yourself, as some people may think. Based on this erroneous assumption, and many other ideological factors which, to be sure, are beyond the scope of this pod, some people seem to be flouting the practice of wearing face masks, as they are of the mistaken impression that they are only putting themselves, one person, at risk. But as Audrey pointed out, wearing a face mask gets back to the utilitarian principles we discussed earlier in the show. That is, wearing a face mask is about ensuring the best possible outcome for the most people where the spread and contracting of COVID-19 is concerned. Yet, there is something particular about wearing face masks. It has a very physical and frankly at times very physically uncomfortable aspect to it. To help put this into perspective, we spoke with Tom Doyle, a graduate student in the Department of Philosophy at Purdue. Tom is a clinical ethics fellow at the Charles Warren Fairbank Center for Medical Ethics and also organizes the Purdue Lectures in Ethics, Policy, and Science. Tom's dissertation explores the phenomenology of illness. In short, this refers to how we experience illness in and with our bodies, as well as how we experience our bodies in illness. Think of it as the existential, or more loosely speaking, psychological experience of our bodies in illness, as opposed to the strictly physiological aspect of this experience. Tom uses the term dis-ease, that's dis-ease, to convey how during illness we experience a baseline discomfort with our bodies and our physical presence in the world. Where face masks are concerned, there is something discomforting and uneasy about wearing them for many of us, myself included. This discomfort, however, is no reason not to wear a face mask, and certainly is not the same experience one has of their diseased body. We'll return to this discussion of wearing face masks in a moment, but for now, Here's Tom explaining these concepts of the phenomenology of illness in relation to the current pandemic and the existential and psychological effects the pandemic is having on all of us. I think if we just simply are the body and the the body is the anchor to the world, 
any kind of reframing of our body or any type of deeper reflection we have uh, via our body. So if we're placed in a situation in which, you know, we, we reflect on the vulnerability of our personhood through the fact that we aren't going to live forever and our bodies break down, uh, then we start to reflect on our course in life and what do we want to do with our existence. Uh, so I think that, yeah, just generally everybody, I think, is going through a mode of existential reflection because they have a lot of free time to do so. And then also the the fact that the, the free time is caused uh, by a scenario in which we need to make sure that our bodies aren't in close contact with one another because we could be vectors of disease or something like that. Um, COVID-19 has put us into a very, uh, I think different social setting that has allowed a lot of people to do a lot of thinking and a lot of retooling and a lot of, I think, value-based discussions and value-based thinking about what does it mean to exist? What do I want to do with my existence? And, um, that's going to cause, I think, hopefully changes within the future. Tom has a very interesting and personal story to tell regarding how he came to be interested in this topic of disease, a story we'll revisit in a future episode. Where face masks are concerned, it seems that there are two teams out there right now, the team that wears face masks and the team that does not. So we're all, explicitly or not, or consciously or not, making a decision as to which side of the social divide we want to be on. And this decision signals not only the role we may potentially play in the spread of the novel coronavirus, but also how we will present and project ourselves to the world in the months to come. Here's Tom offering a moral perspective on the individual and social decision-making processes at play here. Everybody is making or undergoing some type of moral judgment right now about um, what risk category do they want to be in. And in the United States, we've pretty much allowed people to decide what risk category they want to be in, in, in some sense. Um, essential workers, of course, don't get to decide what risk category they are in. If they want to continue to have their jobs, they need to maintain their level of risk each and every day. Um, but for the most part, we've allowed people to morally decide where they want to stand. Do they want to take this as if they could be possible vectors of disease and stay home and not, and not have the possibility of spreading it to others? Do they want to go out and just live their lives as they normally would and just, you know, have the belief that um, they're not going to let the disease or COVID affect how they would normally live their lives? So I think the hyper-awareness is also morally situated um, that people are really thinking about uh, what choices are they all right with and what moral framework are they using to justify those choices. And I think everybody is in some way, shape or form engaging with that. And I think that in another way shows us that um, when our embodiment comes into question to relate this back to my dissertation topic of phenomenology of illness, when our embodiment comes into question, um, also our moral decision-making comes into question about what we want to do with our existence and what is all right and what is um, morally justified or okay to do really comes into question. So we make these moral decisions or don't make these moral decisions and we go out and interact with the world with a face mask on or without one. One question that we wanted to ask is why it seems like Americans in particular are so skeptical of the benefits of wearing a face mask. 
Why are so many Americans, particularly in certain states and regions of the country, just not wearing masks? We end the show where we started it, in conversation with Dan Kelly. Here, Dan offers an insightful take on American individualism as it relates to the ethics of social distancing, or, perhaps more accurately, as it relates to the inability of many Americans to follow the protocols of social distancing. I mean, I, I don't think that to the extent that there's a moral argument here, it doesn't, it doesn't seem like it's a very complicated one. It's, it's, <laughs> I, I mean, so, so the, I guess some background is, and part of the reason if, if there's this vibe out there that, you know, America maybe is um, particularly bad at doing, following the social norms to social isolate right now. And like, I mean, right now they're not just social norms. They're like formal, I don't know if they're laws, but they're decrees coming from governors and yeah. um, well, you know, yeah. people in town. Uh, but there's like, then there's these informal norms, which um, baked into the American psyche, you hear this all the time, is that we're, we're an extremely individualistic people, this myth of the rugged individualism in the United States. And so what, what is that? What is that idea or what is that package of cultural values, which is just deeply ingrained in our you know, uh, national DNA? And it's this idea that what you should do is like, you know, flout the social norms and like don't conform to what everyone else is doing and that there's real value in um, and following your own inner picture of what you should do or what's best for you or to be authentic means to um, to go against the grain. Um, and it's all it's just tons of emphasis on self. And yeah, this goes back to one of the one of the foundational documents of of this is Self Reliance by w Ralph Waldo Emerson, which it's just one. I mean, this you know, I read this when I was twenty one. Hmm. I, I read it before then, but I read it when I was twenty one, and it like it just really spoke to me. Like, yeah, I'm gonna go out there, and I'm not gonna do what anyone else tells me, and I'm gonna I'm gonna find my own way in the world, and to hell with the bad advice of past generations. And who are these people? You know, it's just um, you know. Uh, that's part of how we see ourselves. And I think that's, that's probably what's somewhat operative in this. If America's doing this better, uh, not as well as the rest of the world, um, this is part of the strain or this is part of the, the mix in there is this idea that we're a bunch of individualists and we, you know, we do what we want to do and the man's not going to tell me what to do. And um, so, so the, the moral argument, and there's lots of virtues which have come with this and like the American strain of rugged individualism and self-reliance is sort of, an outgrowth of this movement of the rise of individualism, which came out of Europe and like the Renaissance and the Enlightenment and everything. And that's a very long, complicated story. But the, the argument, and so it, it places a lot of value on individuality and, and, and liberty and sort of personal responsibility and individual rights, um, which is good. I don't, don't want to just do nothing but talk crap about that. Um, <laughs> um, but so, sort of there, there are limits on, on, the sphere of personal choice and how much you should get to choose to do whatever the hell you want to do. And those limits, you know, my, my right to do what I want stops at, at basically the point I'm infringing on your ability to choose or your ability to not experience, you know, pain or not. Um, and so I think, you know, at, an analogy maybe for the moral argument for doing social distancing right now would be the, the moral argument against smoking in public places. Hmm. Right. Okay, so, that's so, interesting. Fine. It's my so I can put myself at risk by choosing to smoke cigarettes. I have that right. That's sort of you know, um, no paternalistic government or big brother is going to tell me I can't do that. <laughs> right, and that's great. You know, I'd, so that that falls within the sphere of my personal choice, and and um, even though it's you know in various ways detrimental, I can choose to do it. Um, 
but there's a good argument that that's fine and that's you know that's copacetic with all the individualism um, and self-reliant stuff um, but I shouldn't be able to do it in public spaces because when I smoke there's secondhand smoke which affects everyone else around me so there's a sense in which my decision to do this which is fine um, should be restricted in various ways if it impinges on the health and well-being of the people around me and in this case a fairly direct hmm. way right um, hmm. so it's the same argument I use that I, that uh, I don't let students use screens or laptops in my classes um, and I have this argument with people they're like but the students they're adults they should be able to choose whether or not you know they're gonna surf Facebook or look at Instagram while they're in your class um, you know that's their decision right that's their they're grown-ups they should take responsibility um, and fine but if you're on a laptop and you're like watching friends on Netflix in the middle of a class, it's not just affecting you. Like there's people sitting behind you in the lecture hall and it's extremely distracting, right? You know, there's a sense in which it falls within your domain of personal choice, but it's a choice that if you make it, it has an immediate influence on the well-being of other people. And that's the argument for like social distancing, right? Like, yeah, sure, you want to go play. Um, ultimate frisbee or you want to go hang out at the beach or you want to go have a you know drink at the bar yeah there's a sense in which in normal circumstances that's fine but we're in a set of circumstances right now where your actions in this regard have immediate and in this case like potentially lethal consequences for people who are not you and that's exactly where like the domain of your personal sphere does in fact need to be um so there needs to be some boundaries there and that's what that's what these norms and these directives from governors and stuff are, to my, to my mind, supposed to be doing. Um, so we're in extraordinary circumstances. Like, yeah, this is a, a case in which like you, the sphere of your individual liberty needs to be, needs to be shrunk a little bit until we get out of this collectively because your decisions don't just have an effect on you. Well, this brings us to the end of today's episode. Just to recap, some of the themes from today's conversations are the uncertainty around the pandemic itself and its effect on the future, the difficulty of making projections to determine the impact of the pandemic on our economies and healthcare systems, and the dilemmas that we are all thinking through during this pandemic, from decisions about being out and about in the world and how we will do so, to policy decisions being made by local and national governments. We wanted to start the series where much of our own thinking took us when the pandemic began and where it was during the middle of the stay-at-home orders when we began recording. If the threads seem scattered, perhaps that merely reflects the confusion and uncertainty many of us were experiencing during our respective isolations, or, at least, the confusion of your intrepid hosts. Thanks to all of our guests who appeared on today's show. We'll be introducing listeners to more voices as the series progresses, and we'll be revisiting some of the topics we touched on here in episodes to come. In the remainder of the series, we'll take a deeper look at some of the economic ramifications of COVID-19, further explore how it has affected healthcare, view it in relation to previous pandemics, explore some more epidemiological aspects of the novel coronavirus itself, and look at the new normal that is the current and will be the post-pandemic world. Thanks so much for joining us for Episode 1 of the Grindstone's COVID-19 series, and stay tuned. Episode 2 drops next Friday, the 26th of June, 2020. Take care, stay healthy, and we'll see you all next week. The Grindstone is brought to you by the Department of Philosophy at Purdue University and is supported by the College of Liberal Arts at Purdue. Our intro and outro music is by Al Turity. You 
can follow the Department of Philosophy at Purdue on Facebook at Philosophy at Purdue, on Twitter at Philo, all caps, P-H-I-L-O, underscore Purdue, and on Instagram at Philo, underscore Purdue.